like to really pray about what I'm going to talk about when I, when I come to church. And it's not often that I'll repeat um, a word when I bring it, unless God specifically told me to. And when I was thinking about what I was going to bring tonight, I wasn't sure um, whether what God was giving me was for me or whether it was um, what I needed to bring tonight. And as of this morning, I was still a little bit undecided, which is cutting it really fine if I've got to write something else before tonight. And then I read the, um, the Bible app verse for the day. And it was Psalm 139, 23 and 24. And it said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive if there's anything, any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And you see, what God had given me to talk about is um, going through a crisis. So when it mentioned anxious thoughts, I thought, no, it really is for tonight, what you've given me to talk about, God. And then I couldn't have wished for better songs, could I, better hymns, just to, you know, clarify it that little bit more for me and, and the words that David's prayed. And I just think, what an amazing God we serve. Um, so, why did I want to talk about going through a crisis? Well, because I've been going through a crisis. And it's really knocked my confidence. So I just love that God has like, not only verified for me once what he wanted me to talk about, but he's verified it twice. And I don't need to really go into what my crisis is, because we all go through crisis, don't we, at various points of our life. Um, and it can be through because of all different sorts of things. But my crisis has left me feeling incredibly anxious, scared sometimes, very, very sad. And often you can sit in, in a congregation, and, and this is not me disrespecting any other preacher, but we can have it highlighted to us that actually if you're, if you're suffering with anxiety or if you're sad about something, Where's your joy? Where's your joy in Christ? Why, why is your relationship fractured when God has told us not to be fearful and God has told us not to be afraid? And then I start to think, oh, like, is there something wrong with my relationship with God? And do you know what? I really don't think there is. Because more than 80 times God has said, fear not, in the Bible. And more than 30 times God has said, do not be afraid, or something similar. So I get it. It's an instruction from God that we shouldn't be fearful and we shouldn't be anxious. But I think if he wants to repeat it more than 120 times, I think he gets it that we are going to be fearful and we are going to be anxious, and he expected us to be that way. So the one day I was sitting there and I was fearful and I was anxious, and I was trying to find the verse that, that told me to just be still and know that he is God. And I know it's somewhere in Psalms, but I couldn't remember which Psalm it was and I wanted to read the whole Psalm. So I Googled it, because Google is my friend. What did people do before Google? You know I always quote Google, it's a good job they don't charge me. But what God gave me was a different verse. He didn't give me Psalms, he gave me Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. And they read, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. 
The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And I thought, you know, that's even better than be still and know that I am God. Because I need to stand firm. So I've made a decision recently, and it's really hard to stand by that decision. But I really believe it's a decision that God's given me. And he's told me to stand firm. So I've got to stand on that decision. And I will see deliverance, which is what I'm scared. I'm not going to. I'm scared that I'm going to stand firm on this decision and, and nothing's going to come of it. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And I believe the circumstances I'm going through are very particular. And I believe if I stand firm on his decision, I'm never going to see this circumstance again. I just need to get through it. And I know there'll be other crises, but not this one. It won't be repeated. Because it's one that I've gone through time and time and time again. But if I stand firm, this is going to be the last time that I'll face it. And what really excited me about this verse is when it said, not only do I just need to be still, I haven't got a battle anymore. I haven't got a fight anymore. Do you know what? God's going to fight for me. And when he fights a battle, the battle is won, isn't it? The battle is already won. So my God is going to fight for me. So as I know some of you know, I'm a social worker. And when I was studying my social work degree, we did something um, or studied something that's known as the um, crisis theory. So how do you work with families that are going through a crisis? And what I learned when I was learning about crisis theory is nothing lasts forever. So, so unfortunately, the good times don't last forever. And how often have you been there when you're like, yay, things are going so great. But when are my legs going to be knocked from underneath me? But actually, the good thing is, the bad times don't last forever either. So even when a family is going through the worst crisis, we know that it's not going to last forever and some way it's going to be resolved. In Psalm 30 it says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favour is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And I love that, that, that thing about night and day, because it is cyclical. So we will go through a crisis and then we will go through day. Just as night turns to day and day turns to night, we will keep going through that crisis. And if we are going through a crisis, at some point, either the stressor that's causing the crisis will change or our response will change. It's got to be one or the other. If the stressor can't be changed, then we need to change our attitude or our perspective to it. If there's something going on that's causing us anxiety, can we do something to see it differently? Can a problem become a learning opportunity or a challenge to overcome? Can a task become something that gives us a sense of accomplishment? And sometimes the situation is just too big to deal with. It's just too big to handle. So what do we do? We just focus on the here and now. And we decide what is the next little thing that we have to do. And it's funny, we were talking about eating cake earlier. You know, if someone was to put a big cake down in front of you, you might think, oh, I couldn't eat that all at once. So I'll just have a little slice. And then you have another little slice and another little slice. And then before you know it, 
you've eaten the cake. So just like that cake, our big problems, we need to take them just one slice at a time. And it's interesting, when I was, when I was typing this, um, I typed in, we need to focus on the next thing we have to do. And autocorrect corrected my sentence, and it actually changed it to focus on the next thing we have to God. So rather than to do, it says we have to focus on God. And I just loved the fact that even while I was typing, autocorrect was focusing me up on God. So we need to make sure the action we're going to take um, is positive um, and it's concrete. And we have to think about what we're going to do rather than not, what we're not going to do. So focus on the positive, not the negative. So how do we take that crisis theory that we learn in social work and relate it to how we live our lives with God? In Ephesians 6, 13 to 18, it says, and I'm reading from the message version just because I know it's got a real spin on it, but I love the spin that the message puts on this. It says, be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them through your life. God's word is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Pray hard and long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Keep each other's spirits up so that no one falls behind or drops out. So I just want to focus on what a couple of those, a couple of the things it says in that verse about when we're going through a crisis, how we should go through that with God. And it tells us to pray. And I know it's an obvious one, isn't it, prayer? And we often say to people, I'll, I'll pray for you. But actually, do you know, prayer puts our focus on God, doesn't it? You know, if everything's going wrong about you, and you are scared, and you are anxious. The second we start to pray, we're actually focusing on God rather than the issue. But for many people, this can be difficult because when we're in a crisis, we want a miracle because there's only a miracle that's going to end that crisis there and then. But experience might have shown us that asking for miracles in the past has left us disappointed. We may have prayed that someone would recover from an illness, and they didn't. That a biopsy would come back negative, but it didn't. That our desperately needed raise at work um, wasn't given. Or we may have prayed for a deteriorating relationship to be rescued, and that prayer wasn't answered. Because at some time in our lives, we may have expected God to be like a superman. We've got an image of him as a bit of a magician that he can wave his magic wand and everything will be okay. But he can't, well he can fix everything, but he doesn't. I was going to say he can't fix everything, but he can. 
and we think, oh, if only God would choose to answer my prayers. So we can, I suppose, at times become a, a little bit disappointed. But a path, a path to prayer opens up when we let God be the tender, compassionate God of the scriptures. And when we let Jesus reveal God's good news to us. And in this faith, God doesn't manage the world like a puppeteer. He isn't there just pulling strings. He doesn't suspend the natural laws of, of the world. He doesn't suddenly change a, a circumstance because all of a sudden our prayers have changed. He doesn't pander to our every whim, I suppose. In faith, God is revealed as the God of power. In the midst of those places where we may feel that God is powerless, actually that's when his power really shines through. Because in faith, God grieves with us in the tragedies. In faith, we're freed by the, the news that Jesus saved us um, from, from fear. We, we know um, that God has overcome the ultimate power of sin and death. He doesn't, he doesn't prevent sin and death from happening, but what he has promised us is that he has overcome it. When we believe in God's mercy and trust that our lives were created for eternal life in God, we are liberated from a fear of sin and death, which can sometimes paralyze us. So we pray because God wants to be there for us. He wants to be there through the hard times. He wants to walk the path with us when we're going through a crisis. He wants us to turn and ask for intimacy, comfort and help. We pray to God because God wants a relationship with us. So what else can we do? We can immerse ourselves in the word. So I'm a real, um, when I'm going through a tough time, I either want to wrap myself up in a quilt and go to sleep or lose myself. And I was going to say in a trashy novel, but I don't mean a nasty trashy novel. I just mean one that's really easy to read. That's not going to take any thought. That's just going to take me out of my life. But that solves nothing. It may do for the half hour I'm reading, but it, it doesn't solve anything in the long term. But what we can do is immerse ourselves in the word, in the Bible. And I've had to really challenge myself that, am I, am I reading the Bible just for information purposes? Because there's a good list of rules in the Bible, isn't there, that you can read, and there's some quite interesting stories. Am I wanting to know what the Bible says about something rather than reading it to be transformed? Because like I've said, if we're going through a crisis, either the, the, the trigger has to change or we have to change. And sometimes the circumstances aren't going to change. So am I reading my Bible to transform me, to move me forward? So I challenge you, are you an informational reader of the Bible or a transformational reader of the Bible? And when I was looking at this, how do we become... How do we move from being an informational reader to a transformational reader? What makes it stick? What makes the reading the Bible start to transform us? 
And, and one, of, one person that read said, by asking God to give us an affection for the Bible. Because when we have an affection for the Bible, that's when it will produce an affect in us. That's when we will become affected by it. Just as when we have affection for people, we become affected by them. We, you know, I, I was thinking back to um, when I first met my husband and he would listen to a totally different sort of music than I would ever have listened to. But actually, as I spent more time with him and I became affectionate and affected by him, I would want to spend even more time with him. And actually, I would then start to enjoy the music that he listened to. And there comes a day, one day, when you think, you know, how, how my tastes have changed because I've been affected by this person. And I think we need to do that when we pray to God about the Bible. Lord, let me have an affection for your word so that I can be affected by it. And God, um, if, if we read our Bible enough and we memorise verses, we may not memorise them in its entirety, but we get the flavour for it. So just as when I was looking for that verse about standing and knowing that he was God, because I knew that there was a verse that existed like that, actually God led me to another one that comforted me. Because he will bring something to us that we've stored in our heart. Often, you know, we can, we can experience something, we can read something, then it's, it's gone, it's forgotten. Um, but actually, if we have an affection for it, if it's made us feel something, then we'll remember it and that's when we can recall it. Uh, I often think that when we think about other people, we often remember how they made us feel. We don't remember what they were wearing or what we were doing, but we remember that person and we remember how they made us feel. So just like God isn't a magician and he can't wave his magic wand, the Bible's not a magic book. It doesn't work through osmosis. However, what does go in will come out. The Spirit will bring out what you have stored from when you've read it. And that's just one of the ways that God works in our life. He brings to mind the things that we've placed there. But we don't only just have to read the word. We have to use it. We have to apply it. Because knowledge without practical application can make you intelligent. However, it doesn't help us to mature in God. So another thing that I've had to think about when I've been going through this crisis is actually I need to guard my heart. Because there's been times, in all honesty, when I have felt bitter and I felt angry and I felt guilty and actually I've tried to make someone else feel guilty. And none of those things are helpful in any sort of way for moving forward. Um, one thing that I remember hearing the once that's always stopped with me is bitterness is like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. Because as much as I may feel bitter about what someone's done to me, they're not going to feel the pain of that, but it will poison me, it will poison my thoughts, it will poison my words, and it, and it will bring me down. I, had, there was, I was reading a person called McLaren. I have no idea who they are, 
but I did like what they said about this. It says, it is easier to glow with indignation against ill evildoers than to keep oneself from doing evil. There are many secret sins hidden under a cloak of zeal for the Lord. And I love that. It's so much easier, isn't it, sometimes to finger point than actually to look at ourselves. In Ephesians 4, 29, it says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. But don't let that be your internal voice either. Oh, no, sorry, that's me. Ephesians doesn't say that, that's me. So what I was trying to say about that is, Ephesians say about not letting unwholesome talk come out of our, our mouths to other people but actually we can't let our internal voice have those unhelpful thoughts either so we can't talk negatively to ourselves we can't you know take captive that thought you know rather than think bad of someone actually no I'm not going to do that I'm not going to allow my internal voice to do that because you know I need to be concentrating on God and if I'm doing that I'm not going to be having these negative thoughts. So guard your heart, guard your internal voice, and guard the words that come out of, out of your mouth. And lastly, care for others. And I, I was thinking about this, I suppose, in a secular sense, because when they talk about mental health, one of the things they say is if you want good mental health, then you need to volunteer. Because if you're helping someone else, then it makes you feel good about yourself. And I was thinking, and actually, if you're thinking about someone else and positively worrying, not a negatively worrying, but positively worrying about someone else, actually, you can't be worrying about yourself if you're thinking of others. But then I thought about it in a biblical sense. And in that passage, um, that I read from Ephesians, it actually says, keep each other's spirits up so that no one falls behind or drops out. So all the mental health experts, you know, who would they have ever realised that they were quoting the Bible to us? So we encourage other people. And like I say, um, when I hit a crisis, my first reaction is to roll myself in my quilt, even in the middle of summer and lie on the sofa and go to sleep. Because things don't hurt when you're asleep. You can't worry unless you're dreaming and having a nightmare when you're asleep. And I do think that sleep is a great healer. But there becomes a point when actually um, you've slept for long enough and you need to get out there in life. And I've got some really good friends who will give me that time. They'll give me a morning to wrap myself in my quilt. But then they're saying to me, come on, Kay, you need to get out now. You need to be back in with the land of the living. And we need to do that for each other. We need to keep each other's spirits up. So I don't fall behind and I don't drop out. And most people seek to apply the word of God to themselves. And I think as a society, we've become very much oh, well, that's their business and, and this is mine and I'll keep myself to myself and I'll mind my own business. But that's 
you know, it's always good, you know, to take the log out of your own eye before you, you know, you get the speck out to someone else's. So I'm not arguing against that. But when we read the Bible, it often says about encouraging one another. And, and often when, when we get a command from the Bible, it will be followed with, with one another. And I think that's for a reason. Um, when we see things in people that need to be changed, I think we have a duty to, to challenge that in them. So when I am being bitter and miserable, and my good friends have a duty to challenge that in me. There's, there's actually quite a few verses in the Bible that tell us to challenge people when, when they're not being, you know, um, when they're not following God's instruction and, and when they're not acting as, as God would want us. But it does say that we need to do it in an appropriate way. So my best friend will take me to one side and she'll tell me, do you know what, Kay, that, that's, that's not you speaking. That's not, you know, that's not how you would normally be. You know, you need to look at that a different way. Or have you, have you thought about what you're doing there? Do you want to reconsider this? So she does it in private and she does it gently and she does it with love because she has, you know, the best of me in mind. And if they refuse to listen, what do we do? So if we've challenged someone with love and we've challenged them gently, what do we do next? Do we think, oh, well, I did try telling her. And she wouldn't listen. So you know what? Let her get on with it. She'll learn the hard way. Because I must admit, I've, I've done that a few times. But what the Bible says is that if they won't listen, we need to escalate it to the church. Now, I'm not condoning standing at the front of church as well and saying, ah, do you know what Kay's been up to? And sharing that with the church. But what we do need to do is take it to the leadership who can then deal with it in love. Now, whether that be someone who's perhaps not acting as they should be, or as has happened in my case in the last few weeks, my friend has gone to the church leaders and said, you know what, Kay's really sad and Kay's really upset and you need to come around her and you need to support her and you need to pray with her. And that's what we need to do as a family in the church, isn't it? We need to build each other up and be accountable and responsible for each other. So, those are the four things that I really feel when we go into a crisis that, that, we should, that we should do. Care for others, guard our hearts, pray and seek the word and lose ourselves in the word. And I always try and have a summary at the end, surmise what it is that I've, that I've bought. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to say, God read, um, led me to Romans 8, and it just says it so much perfectly than I could ever um, write it. So 31 to 39, it says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? 
it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I just want to encourage you that whatever you may be going through today, or if you hit a bump in the road tomorrow, just remember that those words um, from Exodus. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still.